Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. I'm the host of the Freely Filtered podcast, and what you're going to hear is a slightly different episode. On November 3rd, in the middle of Kidney Week, we rented out the city winery in Philadelphia and did a live recording. It's a little bit of a different Freely Filtered. We brought in the curbsiders, we had kind of a variety hour, and then we did a traditional Freely Filtered draft. The podcast begins with me talking a little bit about the history of NFJC. Enjoy. He's like a dog. He was all over it. And like a week later, I had a full document in a blog post ready for publication about how he would run a Twitter journal club. And that post is still up on, where'd you you post that swap? On Medium, he posted that on Twitter, and you can go to that Medium post and you can read what Swap's vision for NefJC was before NefJC had a name, and it is pretty much what we still do today. Six months later, it was our first ASN. We had never met in person. It was in Philadelphia. We came here and we did something called NefJC Live. We had a few live people. We had Perry Wilson came up. He talked about uh, some of his early work on AKI detection and. You can kind of trace that dotted line all the way here to today to where we all are. So I am super, it's, it's amazing that we're here today. So. And I have, nephrology has been very, very good to me, okay? And I've had the, I've been blessed to be able to go around the country and give grand rounds and give talks. And uh, I come home and my father says, well, all he wants to know is, how many people were in the audience. Like that is his measure of success. And my dad is turning 80 in about six weeks. And so I, I want everybody, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start a video and I want you guys all to say, happy birthday, Jeff, okay? So one, two, three. Happy birthday, Jeff! Oh my God, that was awesome. So uh, we've got a we've got a we've got a show for you. Like this is not just a typical NFJC. We are actually we actually have a variety show. And so I want to invite up people that need no introduction. Which is whenever you say that, you're about to introduce them. So I'd like to introduce a group called the Curbsiders. Come on up. <laughs> Matt, thanks for having us. Paul, excellent. And uh, uh, so we're going to do... <laughs> what are we doing? Uh, we'll, we'll sit down and uh, we're going to do a proper show here. All right, so I apologize to everybody for what's about to happen here, but if you watch the show, you know this is... Uh, all right, just pretend, yeah, pretend this is a show. Totally natural, Paul. It feels yeah, totally, it's a totally show, natural. Which it is. You know, Paul, I didn't tell you about this, but recently I actually donated one of my kidneys. Did you know that? I, I know, I did not know that. Yeah. And the main reason I did this is because afterwards I posted a selfie, and uh, do you know what the caption said? You're going to tell me. It said, uh, hashtag no filter. <laughs> you don't have to do this. <laughs> All right, this one's like very loosely related to the topic. Um, this may have been a recycled Stewart joke as well, oh, which, uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, Paul, do you know where you can find a bunch of proteins? No, tell me. Online gaming. Proteins. At just 
as funny now as it was then, I'm if sure. You, if you don't know, <laughs> to, the, to the audience, uh, if you have to explain a joke, that means, that means it was really funny. The more you have to explain it, the funnier it is. Uh, so with that, welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Frank Watto, here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. And I should mention, he is America's primary care physician. Paul, how are you? Just waiting for the thunderous applause. It's just not coming. <laughs> <laughs> that was cheap. <laughs> it's our roll. That was cheap. Yeah. All right. So on tonight's show, we are going to first, we are going to be talking with a veterinary nephrologist, Dr. J.D. Foster, about, we're going to answer some veterinary nephrology questions. I'm sure you all have them. And then we are going to talk with an author, the author of, and I want to get the title right, These Vitals, A Doctor's Notes on Life and Loss in Tweets, Dr. Syed Tabatabai. And uh, before we bring up our guests, our first guest, Paul, would you remind people, what is it that we do on the curbsiders, which might not exactly apply to this, what we're doing here, I but mean, still, for, you know, for posterity. Sure. Typically, and I'm going to still refer to the notes, you know, I've been doing this for seven years. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. We have a couple of experts. We've already covered this, Matt. Now we're recapping old territory. We're also joined, I should say, by Dr. Jenny Lin. Yes, um, great to be here. Yes. <laughs> we needed a real nephrologist with us up here to help us interview, <laughs> do this interview. So thank you for being here. Great to be here. Uh, so let's, let's tell them about our first guest, Paul. Sure. I'm thrilled to introduce Dr. J.D. Foster, who has completed an internal medicine residency at the University of Wisconsin and obtained his master's degree in pharmacology and toxicology from the University of Kansas. After several years in academia, he now runs the nephrology and urology and extracorporeal therapy services at Friendship Hospital for Animals. Dr. Foster's research interests include non-traditional uses of extracorporeal blood purification, glomerular nephritis, I'm starting to see why you made me read this, and drug pharmacokinetics in patients with kidney disease. So without further ado, we're thrilled to welcome Dr. Foster. Thank you. So, thank you for coming on the show, and as always, the first question is, tell the audience, they, they want to get to know you before we start just delving into the topic, so uh, hobby or interest that you have outside of medicine? Sure. Um, so, my name is J.D. Foster, I'm a veterinarian, so I like animals, as most vets, many vets will say, uh, and I practice nephrology and urology, which in our field, we kind of do both together. So we do some surgery, we do dialysis, we do a bunch of all that stuff. Uh, mostly in small animals, occasionally we get lucky and we get an exotic species that come in, but it's mostly dogs and cats. And outside of doing that, love to ride my bike, love to surf in the wonderful ocean waves of Maryland. It's okay. fantastic. I'll, I'll allow it. Uh, and when you say ride your bike, Harley or a bike that you are pedaling? Oh, it, it's all human-powered, yeah. Okay, yeah. all right. Yeah. Still cool. Okay. Uh, Paul, did you want to ask anything? Sure. J.D., I'll ask our stock question. Would you like to share any meaningful advice you've either received or advice that you, you give frequently um, for people who are, are practicing medicine in whatever form? Sure. Uh, probably some of the best advice I got during my residency was being critical of everything and not believing something until you actually prove it yourself. And, I think that's helped a lot when I've been trying to work up patients and I've, they come with a historical diagnosis and it doesn't actually make sense and tearing things apart and actually coming to that diagnosis or refuting it after you do it yourself, I think has always been really gratifying and it's what I pass on to my trainees for sure. I love that. Jenny, anything you wanted to ask? 
Yeah, how does one become a veterinary nephrologist or urologist? So we, it's a very exciting time in our world because then we actually have our own specialty college that was approved about a year ago. So we have the American College of Veterinary Nephrology and Urology as the newest specialty in veterinary medicine. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, it is, it's super exciting. It's a process that's been occurring for probably 30 years that I can take only I, no credit for. I've, I've attached myself to the very recent things that have occurred. But now we have a pathway, which is really exciting. We're actually beginning our, our first resident classes starting right now. And so to become a veterinary nephrologist, urologist, we are generally piggybacking off of people who have already gone through a residency. So they might be internal medicine boarded or critical care boarded, and then they'll pursue as a second training pathway a residency in nephrology and urology. And that's an additional two years of training. And then we have fellowships uh, in extracorporeal therapies and endourology as well, too. So it's, it's a pathway, but it's a pretty great ride. Uh, before we get to a case, Paul, I, I wanted to tell you something that happened yesterday. And, and again, once again, <laughs> audience, I apologize. I'm sorry. Uh, so, and, and I don't think JD, I don't think you would ever behave this way, but the other day, my wife took our dogs to the vet and uh, they, were, you know, they weren't feeling well. So he took them to the vet and he was inappropriate and also very competitive, Paul, because he took his shirt off and he was like, Oh yeah? What do you think of these sick puppies? And he just started flexing right there. Oh. <laughs> no, I've, I've never seen that actually. I, I have to think that if you weren't holding that mic, you'd be high-fiving me right yeah, now. Yeah, no, I'd be slapping both knees, for sure. All right, There's Paul. also, you can do a sick python joke in there. There's a lot of options. It doesn't have to just be dogs. Um, okay, Paul. Uh, I think I'll, I'll, I'll call it quits there, but I think we, I think we all enjoyed that. And, uh... All right, Paul, can you give us a case from, uh, do we have a name for our veterinary hospital? I don't think that we do. All right, just cash lag, <laughs> sure. cash lag veterinary memorial hospital. That, that sounds great. Okay, somebody, if you think of something more clever, shout it out. So, J.D., thrilled to talk to you about this actual case that happened to my cat, Oliver. Um, Oliver Pecan being his full name. So, it's, this, this happened a couple of years ago, and I bought some lilies for my partner, because I, I thought that was a nice thing to do, and they looked pretty. So, I brought them home, and, and didn't realize at the time that apparently lilies are deadly nephrotoxic to cats. <laughs> um, and so, but I, my, my partner apparently knew this, but wasn't too worried, because he doesn't fuss around with plants too much. So, he went, I can't remember where, came back, and literally found him with his face buried in the lily, and like he pulled his head out, like all the stuff, like the pollen was all over his nose. So we weren't too worried about it because he looked fine, but we did call the vet just to check, and they're like, oh, you need to bring him in, like, now. And I was like, oh, okay. So we brought him in, and I found myself asking about kitty dialysis and how worried I had to be about things like that. So I, I wonder if you wouldn't talk us through sort of prototypical cases of acute kidney injury in cats and sort of how those are managed and how concerned I should have been about my cat going through dialysis. He's fine, by the way. Yeah. Kitty dialysis or <laughs> Good one, Joel. I yes. like it. Yes. Kitty dialysis for people who didn't hear it over there. <laughs> uh, well, your cat is pretty lucky to be able to escape the lily unscathed. Uh, yeah, all parts of the lily plant, the leaves, the stem, the pollen, the flowers, probably the roots are toxic. And it doesn't take much for cats to be exposed. They can just rub their face. And in the process of grooming, they'll clean the pollen off their face and they're going to ingest it. 
Um, and it can produce a really bad AKI. And we'll frequently see that cats will develop an aneuric AKI, and that aneuria often will last for seven to 10 days before they'll start making urine again. And it's, if you don't have dialysis, you, it's really impossible to keep a patient alive during that time. Um, we've treated cats, the, one of my longest term patients who I still take care of, I dialyzed him for about a month, and then at that point, the clients were running out of money. This is already like, probably $40,000, $50,000 they've spent already, but this is the point that they're running out of money, and it, it was either the decision to transplant or continue dialysis, but if we would continue dialysis, a transplant wasn't an option. So they did a transplant, and after about six weeks, the graft thrombosed and had to be removed. Um, which the, o the owners call that internal dialysis during that time, which I really <laughs> enjoy, the six weeks of having the kidney transplant. Um, but luckily when the graft was removed, the cat settled with a creatinine of about four and felt great, and I still see him 10 years later That's as a right. patient. So what is, what is a normal creatinine for a cat? Yeah, a normal should be one. The reference range sometimes goes up to 1.8 or two, which is ridiculous. It's about one. Okay. And what's driving that AKI? What's the pathophysiology for why it's so dense and aneurysm? Yeah, the, so there were some studies done in the late 90s where they would take lily extracts, fractionate them, and then kill cats, and then subfractionate them, and kill cats until they could finally try to isolate what was killing the cats, and they ran out of money. Turned out it was scientists. Right, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, yeah, veterinarians who were doing it, right? Um, but they, so they never actually got to the point where they figured out exactly what the toxic principle is, but if you look at histopathology, like the tubules are obliterated. They're just wow. on fire and completely slough off, and you're lucky if the basement membranes are still there, and it's really hard for regeneration, and even cats who are dialyzed, if they had had that severe of an AKI, survival is still only about 50%. Wow. Yeah. And do you, we see this in dogs? Is it just cats and lilies? Yeah, surprisingly, it's just cats, just like grapes and raisins appear just to be toxic to dogs and not to cats, or maybe cats are just not really interested in eating grapes and raisins as much, I don't know. But yeah, we tend to see a species difference there. So what? What are some of the most common kidney injuries that you see in, in the animals? Like what's your sort of bread and butter? What's like a, a typical case for you? Yeah, we see a lot of toxicities. We see people coming home from work and they find that their dog has eaten the bottle of ibuprofen and the bottle of ibuprofen with it. <laughs> um, so we, we, and we, we do a lot of extracorporeal toxin removal. So we'll do plasma exchange or hemoperfusion on that dog because it will cost maybe $3,000 to do that versus $13,000 to dialyze it for its AKI if we can get it in a short enough time period. Um, so we see a lot of toxicities uh, we, and a lot of infections too. Uh, we do see leptospirosis this time of year, so get your dogs vaccinated against lepto if they aren't. Uh, and for cats, it's, it's mostly toxins. And we were talking earlier, and you mentioned that cats are actually a little bit structurally predisposed for um, like obstructive uh, nephropathy too, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. We see a lot of ureteral obstructions in cats. Their ureter is vestigial. It's the luminal diameter is 0.4 millimeters. So it is grains of sand that can cause an obstruction and uh, it, it, can, it can be super devastating. Probably the highest 
magnitudes of azotemia I've ever seen. You know, creatinines of over 30 and BUNs well over 400 in these cats. And sometimes they're still chirping and feeling okay, surprisingly, for time, and then they feel terrible. Jenny, what do you want to talk about next? Should we talk about transplant? Should we talk about access, dialysis access? Where? I know you're very excited. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Uh, your cat's name was Ollie, right? Yes, Oliver. Yeah, yeah. if Oliver had needed a transplant, how, how does that work? Yeah, so there are two main transplant centers in the U.S. that do surgeries in cats these days, and the process is uh, they have to be screened to make sure they're a type A uh, blood type, which is most cats. Um, type B is rare, and it's really hard to find a donor who's a type B. Um, make sure they're free of infectious diseases, and that they cross-match and immunologically com uh, compatible with the donor. The donors are often taken from shelters that are adopted by the universities. They're brought in, they're screened to see that they have normal renal anatomy, that they're healthy, and then they get to live pretty cushy lives until they are selected as the donor. And then surgery day comes, and just like in people, the recipient generally gets the third kidney. If they have polycystic kidney disease, sometimes there's not enough room, and they'll remove one or both of the native kidneys before getting the graft. And then the owners get to take home the donor as well, too. So uh, part of yeah. the agreement part of the contract, is right? the yeah. donor who gave up their kidneys, maybe not willingly, uh, gets to go to yeah, that informed home. consent. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't really have informed consent in veterinary <laughs> medicine. So, sure. Um, but yeah, so you get to you know, leave with the same number of kidneys just redistributed uh, between the two cats. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. That's a really great way to put it. Well, how, how common is polycystic kidney disease in cats? Luckily, it's a whole lot less common. It, there are genetic predispositions to it in Persians and some other breeds and hmm. the cat breeders. I, I, it's weird that I have to say that that's a thing, um, but the cat breeders are actually pretty good about trying to recognize the affected cats and no longer breed them. So we, we don't see it very often anymore. Interesting. Interesting. So I understand that you work with the zoo. You're kind of on call in case there were to be something were to happen. What is the what like what's the what's your favorite animal you've ever had to perform dialysis on? And then maybe give us your dream animal to perform dialysis on. <laughs> okay. Uh, so my favorite that I've done dialysis on, we had a neonatal goat that inadvertently was given about 20 hours of TPN in about 20 minutes oh. and just was in a coma. So the, the large animal hospital called down and I said, well, I think it's probably all the proteins. We could probably do plasma exchange and r make it better, but I need goat blood and goat plasma. <laughs> Sure. And they said, that's no problem. <laughs> We're coming down. Were you expecting that answer? <laughs> it didn't shock me, for sure. Um, so they brought this comatose goat and a very large bag of goat blood and goat plasma with them. And, and we did plasma exchange. And about 30 minutes in, this goat wakes up and starts bleating, not bleeding, but bleating and like making noise. And it just, at the end of a treatment, just pranced out of the room and did totally fine. So that was pretty amazing to do. Paul, he's very good at this. Yeah. <laughs> the puns and the, and the songs. It's all solid. Yeah. But the puns, I'm really, this is 
Thank you. Thank you. I, yeah. I, you know, long-time listener, first-time caller. Preparing <laughs> <laughs> this moment your whole life, I'm sure. Yeah. But if I, if I had my choice, you know, so when we dialyze dogs and cats, we don't sedate them. They're awake. Um, so we're spending a lot of time with them. Sometimes for really young animals, like the dog that ate the bottle of ibuprofen doesn't know it's sick, doesn't want to stay still, and they're bored. And sometimes they need a little bit of a cocktail to keep them quiet. But I don't know, I think I would love to dialyze one of the pandas before they get shipped out because I feel like they'd be so chill. If you just gave them a stack of bamboo, they would be happy. They wouldn't move, they wouldn't try to leave anywhere. So I would be pretty psyched to do that. But they are very clumsy, so (laughs) you might have some decanalation issues. We'll we'll be ready for it. Okay. Now I know what all these late night hosts feel like, Paul, because I think we have, you know, we, we, could, we clearly have more questions for you, but uh, we have another guest, and Joel, how are we doing time-wise? We, we should move along. We should move along, yeah, because there, there's this a variety show, we got a lot. So this has been great, so I think, round of applause for J.D. And actually, J.D., before we go, any, anything you want to plug or any last pleas you want to make before we kick you off the stage? Um, I just wrote a manuscript in Kidney 360 that kind of introduces veterinary nephrology to everybody. So thank you, thank you. And we are always psyched and happy to collaborate and figure out some translational models. So um, hit me up. I tweet at KidneyVet, so you can find me on the Internet. Okay. Thank you so much. Great job. Thank you. It's okay. in pink. Our next guest is Dr. Syed Tabatabai. He is a physician and writer whose debut book, These Vital Signs, A Doctor's Notes on Life and Loss and Tweets, is now available. In his spare time, Dr. Tabatabai loves to travel, play guitar, and play the role of Darth Vader for the Star Wars Society of San Antonio for various charitable causes. So uh, without further ado, he's going to come up and he's going uh, to read a passage from his book, and then we'll, we'll do an interview. Hi everyone. So that's a tough act to follow. I didn't realize how funny this was going to be and how uplifting. So I'm here to bring the mood down. That's usually my job, so thank you. (laughs) So um, I don't know how many of you have followed me on Twitter or read my stories before, but... (laughs) So just a little background so you're not going into this cold. Um, I write on Twitter under the handle TheRealDrT, and I write these kind of uh, tweet threads, you know, narrative stories, uh, centered on themes in medicine. And uh, um, I collated them into a collection, which is what this book is. Uh, These Vital Signs is a collection of those um, stories. And truthfully, the book would never exist without the support of people on Twitter. I refuse to call it X. Uh, People like you. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. The story I'm going to read, I've actually never read at a reading before. I almost always read one of the traditional humanistic, you know, patient narratives or stories. This is a sci-fi story. Sci-fi is my first love, and uh, obviously with the Darth Vader stuff. Um, but uh, this story is a little, a little dark, and uh, I wrote it during COVID, so that kind of <laughs> gives you a little bit of my mental state when I was writing this. But it's called The Handholder. There once was an oath that all doctors had to take. 
something about doing the right thing and trying not to hurt anyone. That was long ago, in the 21st century, before the machines. My great-grandfather took that oath. Machines don't need oaths, but I'm still human. The first thing that hits me is a smell. Coming to the reach is always a stark reminder of just how impoverished some of us really are. Progress always leaves people behind. The question is who gets to choose, who gets left behind, and who rises. I'm here to make a house call. I'm a physician, although in the 22nd century that phrase has lost most of its meaning. We always thought people would want the human touch and healing, but once machines were hitting 100% in their diagnostic accuracy and gene splicing and nanotech were fully viable, it was pretty much over. MD now stands for medical device and refers to any of the hundreds of cyborg med techs on the market. Immortality is in your grasp, if you can afford it. Human physicians never see patients now, they just sit in control rooms overseeing armies of med techs. Except me. Me and a few others like me are the last of a dying breed. We offer medicine to those who can't afford an MD. Our society corporatized medicine long ago, except for us few making our last stand. Derisively, our colleagues in the rich cities call us handholders. Handholders because we don't have the tech to fix most problems, not like they do. But we still have skills from a time long before the first machines performed their first solo surgeries. So here I am in the sprawling slums in the edge of the city known as the Reach. My nano mask is filtering the air I breathe, invisible over my face, and yet I can't get rid of the stench. The smell of rot and decay hits me like a sledgehammer. The synthetic and sanitized city doesn't have smells like these. I walk alone, except for Bernie beside me. MDBRN1E, or Bernie for short, is a decommissioned second generation medtech cyborg, virtually obsolete. I got him on the black market. He provides some medical help, and more importantly, security. There are many anti-medicine cults out there, and most are violent. We walk together in silence, Bernie's motors whirring quietly as he takes one plodding step after another beside me. He's painted white and red with medtech stenciled helpfully across his chest. Almost there, I say out loud. Yes, 132 meters. Bernie's voice is chirpy. The dwelling we enter is a ramshackle affair typical of the reach, with flimsy walls leaning against each other and a dingy bulb swaying, lighting everything in a sickly glow. The patient is a young girl dressed in rags stitched together, lying motionless on the floor. Her father is kneeling beside her, and he looks up at me with a hollow gaze bereft of hope. I know better than ask where the mother is. This is the reach, after all. If you aren't present, you're in the past. I kneel down and touch the girl's forehead. She's burning up. A quick glance at the floor next to her reveals empty bottles of medicine. Most of them are scams or diluted so much they're practically useless. Snake oil salesmen are rampant in the reach, preying on the vulnerable. This girl is dying. I take out my instruments. My great-grandfather was a physician a long time ago when medicine was still practiced by humans. He was a kidney doctor, an idea that seems quaint now. I don't really know much about him, but I have his stethoscope passed down to me, a relic. I press it to the girl. Through the earpieces, I hear the crackling of fluid in the lungs, the thundering of her heart driven to a fury by her fevers and dilating vasculature, a raging storm. Bernie leans over her next to me, his voice 
unreasonably cheerful. Alert, impending system collapse. My options are limited. I'm a handholder, after all. But I retrofitted Bernie a few months ago. It's risky, but I think he's the only chance the girl has. I take her father aside and explain, and his face shows no emotion. I understand. How much more can one heart break? I enter the authorization code in Bernie's interface and leave the dwelling with the father to give the cyborg space to do his OR protocol. There's a brief flash of flickering blue light as Bernie sterilizes the room. As he leans over the, uh, over the girl, I close the door. I stand outside the dwelling with the girl's father, breathing in the heavy smog and saying nothing. He looks down at his feet, silent. I want to ask him a story. How did he end up here? Was he born into this like most of us? the end result of an unbalanced equation. As I'm lost in my thoughts, I feel a small tug in my heavy traveling cloak. Glancing down, I see a child squatting in the dust by my feet. He says nothing, but holds his hands up, cupped together. I have nothing to give him. With each breath, I can see his emaciated ribs. I know in the city, everyone has healthcare. Everyone has food. I could try to take him to the city and beg for help. But those gates were closed to him the day he was born, a natural birth, without the genetic coding that would gift him entrance. I'm sorry, I say. The child looks up at me one last time, then vanishes into the night to join the many faces I haven't helped, that gaze upon me in silent condemnation every time I close my eyes. Handholder, they say, why didn't you hold our hands? I'm sorry, I say, over and over. The hours pass, finally the father speaks. Is she gonna make it? I sigh. She's in better hands with the med tech than with me. He nods and gestures to a tiny disc I wear as a pendant around my neck. What's that? It's a codex. It's called a Hippocratic Oath. What's a Hippocratic Oath? I honestly don't know. It belonged to my great-grandfather. The file's damaged. I can't read it. So why do you keep it? Ah, good luck, I guess. Bernie emerges from the house. Cheerful as always, he chirps. Procedure success. Patient resting. A light enters a father's eyes. For the first time, he smiles. Thank you. I don't have much to pay you, but I can fix that codex. I smile in return, taking off the pendant and handing it to him. Thank you. The truth is, no handholder ever really gets paid, not with money. The father disappears into his home, and I'm left running Bernie's post-op analytics. And after a few minutes, he steps out again, handing me my codex back. It wasn't broken. It was just scratched. I nod. Thanks. Then I read it for the first time. The Hippocratic Oath. There once was an oath that all doctors had to take, an oath reaching across the centuries, reminding me, kindling a fire, why we go to those who suffer and why we hold their hands. I walk with Bernie away from the reach and into the lonely darkness of an endless night. All right, so Paul, do you wanna start off the questioning? Sure, yeah, the questioning, that sounds very harsh, but yes, no, I'm... <laughs> yes, so, the questioning, oh God. <laughs> we're from the future. <laughs> so, I knew was, it. That was fantastic, thank you for sharing that with us. I, you know, we, we started the, the night talking about Twitter and a lot of your writing started on Twitter and I think we were talking about earlier. I, I'm wondering, Twitter has changed, um, and I, for, for better or for worse, depending on who you ask. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm wondering, how you feel about that change and sort of how, you're, how you navigate, I don't want to overstate like the ethical considerations now that 
it's sort of run by a pure avatar of capitalism and what that sort of means. Like, has that impacted your writing? Has that framed how you utilize Twitter as a way to create? And I, I just wonder if you wouldn't sort of speak to how it's evolved over time. I personally think this book would not exist on Twitter the way it is now. Um, I personally feel the medium has really taken a turn. Um, I really don't write there anymore. Uh, part of that is everything feels kind of... Before, Twitter used to feel like there was a connective tissue in communities and you felt like you were seeing people and you were visible and other people were visible to you. And now it feels like things have gotten really siloed. And with this blue check thing running rampant, I feel like I'm interacting more with people where I'm not sure if they're bots, whether I'm not sure what their views are, and everything's gotten divided up. So I think it's in a really bad place. It honestly feels like it's in an end stage. Um, you know, I don't know what's going to take its place, but we talked kind of briefly about that. I don't know if it's going to be blue sky or, or something else, but Twitter just, you know, I don't write stories there anymore, honestly. My, my follow-up to this is completely offline right now. I'm just writing on its own, which is a shame. How has that changed? And I don't want to dominate the discussion, so you can just take my mic away. But, you know, in terms of, because Twitter, one of the, the neat things about it is how it sort of forces you to be concise and have a precision of language and kind of force certain rhythms um, which I think is reflected in your story. So with you not sort of using that as your platform to write, how has that impacted the way that you create? I really loved Twitter for what it gave me in my writing. It gave me a big gift because I always wrote um, throughout my life. I love writing. I always wrote a journal when I was in med school. I, I kind of wrote in, in residency. It sort of fell off in fellowship, and then I stopped writing for a long time. And then when I started messing around with Twitter and its format, it, it was almost like a game, and it made writing fun for me again. And I honestly think it made me a better writer um, because there's so few words and characters you have to play with. You really have to choose them. And you have to put a lot of thought into them and the flow and the rhythm of it. Um, none of my stories is more than 20 tweets because if I go past 20, I have to start a new thread. And so that's an artificial <laughs> boundary. But you know, um, now that I'm writing without that, it's nice and it's also... You know, I missed the dopamine surge a little bit. You know, it was fun interacting with an audience. That writing for an audience and instantly publishing something and instantly getting feedback and likes is a very potent cycle. Without that, though, it's a little more peaceful and it kind of feels like stretching my legs. You know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not thinking to myself, you know, if I change that and to, a, to just a dot, 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 you know, do I save one character? You know, that kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. mental arithmetic. So it's nice. I, I kind of like it. So I wanted to ask, because I'm always, you know, we, we do the podcast, I know how we fit that into our day, but how do you fit in your writing as a, you're working full-time as a nephrologist, so like when do you make time for the writing, how do you fit that in if anyone in the audience is trying to figure out where they're going to fit, fit in some passion project that they have? The bulk of my writing is written in the last probably 30 minutes before I sleep. That's like my last solo dedicated time <laughs> that, that, that nobody needs anything from me. And you know, the last period of time before I sleep, and also it's kind of like my brain's unwinding at that point. It helps me sort through all these thoughts in my head. Um, as I go through the day, sometimes I get ideas mm -hmm. or things flit into my head. And so I have like an iPhone iNotes category, which is just like ideas. And so I'll quickly type something in there. But the bulk of my writing, you have to make time is the bottom line. And for me, the easiest place is like right before I go to sleep instead of doom scrolling for 30 minutes or, you know, you know, binging something or um, I write. And some nights I don't. Some nights it's not there. You know, you don't feel it. And that's fine. But pen and paper or you're typing? Uh, primarily typing. Okay. 
So I guess our last question for you would be uh, any plugs, any, anywhere you'd like to direct the audience. Could be to more of your writing, could be to uh, some new platform other than Twitter. <laughs> well, I guess the obvious plug is my book. Um, if, uh, it's called These Vital Signs. Um, it's available on Amazon. It's available pretty much most places. Um, it's a great gift. Uh, Gift-giving season is around the corner. If you have anyone in your family is thinking about medicine, or just people in general, obviously not all the stories are um, you know, hardcore medical. In fact, I try to lean away from technical stuff and focus more on as Dr. Uh, Avitala Glosser says, the pearl, not the patient. So it, it kind of appeals broadly. So I think it'd be All great. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Round of applause. And so, Paul, I think we should do an outro. If anyone wants to yell out yummy, uh, feel free. Okay. All right. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, has it? Bringing you a little knowledge <laughs> food for your brain hole. <laughs> Yummy. <laughs> Honestly, better than I expected. <laughs> uh, a special thanks to Joel Toff and the Neff JC crew for uh, inviting us here. Uh, we've had a great time. And a shout out to our whole Curbsiders team. We put on a weekly show. We've done this for going on eight years now, which is insane. So uh, thanks to all them. And with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Jenny Lynn. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, thank you and good night. So let's just go around. Let me start off. Uh, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Sophia? Hi, everybody. I'm Sophia Ambruso, and I'm at Sophia Kidney on Twitter. And where do you work? I work at the Denver VA and the University of Colorado. Swap. Hey, I'm Swap Nalhiramad. I'm a nephrologist, epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. I uh, am uh, on Blue Sky and Mastodon, and also on X at H Swapnil. I, I have no conflicts today. <laughs> you don't yeah, know I don't that have yet. conflicts. You don't either. know that yet. Sorry. <laughs> no. Uh, my name's Nan Aurora. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Washington in Seattle. Yeah, no, nobody from Seattle. Oh, what? <laughs> I tweet at Captain Chloride. AC. Hey, everyone. I'm AC Gomez. I'm a nephrology fellow, a MedPeds nephrology fellow at Mass General Brigham and Boston Children's, and I tweet it at MedPeds Kidneys. She is the latest addition to the filtrate. Woo woo! <laughs> She's so fresh off the boat, we don't have the cartoon avatar yet, <laughs> but it's coming. I'm Josh Waitsman. I'm a nephrologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Uh, I tweet at Jay Waits. I'll talk about my conflict when I make my draft pick. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So this has been a, a tradition of Freely Filtered for a few years now when we have a manuscript or an event where we want to cover a lot. So we did this with... Uh, with a number of the KDGO guidelines. We did this with the ISPD guidelines. Uh, we did this with the ASN uh, Kidney Week for the last couple of years, where we kind of, we look back and we say, hey, this guideline has 23 different recommendations and we're just gonna do a draft, fantasy football, football style, and we're gonna pick 
what people feel is the most important guideline or the most important study or what's the best thing that they've learned at Kidney Week. So today at ASN Kidney Week was the late breaking and high impact trial. How many people went to that session at 10.30? Give me a clap. It was a good one, right? I've been to these late breaking and high impact trials for a number of years, and it's usually one sad trombone after another as, as studies go down. Right, so this one had a lot of positive trials. I think there's a lot of fresh meat. And we're gonna go around, everybody's gonna pick their top high impact and late breaking clinical trial. And we have a tradition here. We have a tradition, we, we have carefully examined everybody and everybody's skills at drafting and we have the person who's absolutely terrible at this, the worst person <laughs> at drafting, and that's Sophie. And because she's so bad, and because she's never going to pick anything that anybody else is, wants to draft, we let her go first, right? So she, she's developed a good strategy here. Sophie, what do you got? Okay. Um, so I know it's typically my brand to, like, pull up something super esoteric, but um, I do want to... Can I just mention one thing? Go when on. I When I was a second-year fellow... Yeah. Um, woo uh, That was in 2017... The two trials that came out, and I, my, my memory might be serving me a little bit incorrectly, I'm not totally sure, but it was Difelicophelin and Mentor, and that's literally all it was. And I was like, is this really what I went into? And no wonder nobody wanted to come into nephrology, but it has changed rather substantially over the last couple of years, and it's really exciting. So I just, everybody, I want everybody to celebrate all of the amazing things that's happening in nephrology right now. Okay, so I'm going to be less esoteric, and you guys wouldn't believe the jokes against me last night <laughs> at 1 a.m. about what I might select as my choice. Uh, I just want to put it in context. Last year, when we did the Kidney Week draft, okay, so we all went to Kidney Week for a week, and Sophie had her first draft, and what was her draft pick? It was Fina. She it was so not just Fina. Fina at a lunch symposium. A, no, no, no. It was, it was Turla Preston at a Malincroft sponsored lunch. And she didn't even like the talk that much. That was <laughs> the topic was good. The topic was good. The information was good. It's just, you know, where I got it from was a little questionable. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, you're so gonna do better this year? I'm going to try. <laughs> so because I get to go first I actually get to choose um, one that I think is really interesting and this all has to do with IGA and I think we're all wondering like what are we going to do with all of this new data that's coming out and how are we going to be interpreting and, and um, using this new data and these medications that are going to become available but I think without further ado you guys know what I'm, gonna, what I'm going to select is the PROTECT trial and that is Sparsintan versus Irbisartan, and it's a phase three, phase three. Um, and it's looking at that NRIGA populations. I know that we'd seen early publications that was already promising with albuminuria, but basically what we're seeing is reduction in albuminuria that's rather substantial. And we're also seeing um, both chronic and total slope that's looking positive for the Sparsintan group. And then a lot of other... Um, uh, subgroup analyses that are also positive. So I think this is interesting. I do want to add as a caveat, IGA is a really 
bad disease. And our slope is still awful, even when we have sparse tan. And it's, it'll be really interesting how everything sort of um, settles out, but um, it's exciting. It's exciting to see what's happening in IGA right now. But I think that that, for me, is my I think this, one of the neat things about the PROTECT2 trial, which is this GFR data that was talked about this morning, is we have this surrogate endpoint of reducing proteinuria. And the promise there was that reducing proteinuria, which we, we knew that, what, nine months ago that it did that, was the hope that would also result in, in better GFR. And that's what we saw today. And I love that that surrogate outcome is working and not deceiving us. I would agree. But with that comes the Phil Sparry reps that are the most aggressive reps I've ever encountered. <laughs> they have not approached me at all, surprisingly. They will now. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, Sparsentan is this dual, you know, for those who don't know, it's this dual endothelin antagonist with an ARB. Uh, so I do want to give a shout out to Michelle Rowe, who is out there. So Michelle uh, was the first author. She was on the podium today. Uh, she uh, she led the um, uh, the other trial called Duplex. This is not my choice, but you know how I am. I kind of swap pick six things. This is not my <laughs> not pick. Uh, but you know, it's 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 awesome to see someone from Neff Twitter up on the big podium. Someone I know is that she's the first author of the NEGM paper. So you know, hooray for uh, Michelle. Let's give her another round of applause. <laughs> The amazing thing is that she came tonight, right? I thought she was going to be, like, too important. <laughs> there is an open bar. <laughs> so I think what was really exciting about the PROTECT trial was the magnitude of proteinuria reduction there was, like, 40% as opposed to 4% in the ARB group, which I thought was really cool. And then the GFR slope we're seeing, it's, it's not a huge change, but it's a change in the right direction. It's going from like minus three a year to minus two a year or something like that. And that's definitely moving toward the, the not progressing, which is exciting. How exciting is this GFR slope anyways and this chronic slope that everybody's utilizing? And it's kind of brand new that the SGLT2 groups brought out and really sort of highlighted. Did we sort of get that in the, in the PKD stuff first from the Tolvaptan trials back in the day? Uh, yeah, we got into that, but with Reprise, they actually did the 40% the, the GFR, right? Swap got it wrong. The primary outcome in Reprise was the change in the estimated GFR from baseline to follow-up, with adjustment for the exact duration that each participant participated in, interpolated to one year. This resulted in a loss of 2.34 milliliters per minute in the tolvaptan group versus 3.61 milliliters per minute in the placebo group, a difference of 1.27 and a confidence interval of 0.86 to 1.68, p-value less than 0.01. Uh, but the, the slope of GFR, so the question is, is this, uh, is this accepted as a surrogate outcome? Because previously, you know, if you remember trials, we used to do doubling of creatinine, we used to do end-stage renal disease or death. Uh, but, but the problem with some diseases such as polycystic kidney disease or IgE nephropathy is that we see patients so early, they're going to take like five years or 10 years to develop kidney failure. And it's not reasonable to have, you know, a new drug and say, hey, you have to do a five-year trial. By that time, the drug will be out of patent, the company is not going to make any profit, and, you know, it's, it's going to be too late for all these patients. 
So the National Kidney Foundation and, and uh, the FDA actually got together. They said, let's do a workshop. Let's look at the surrogate outcomes. There was a lot of work that went into this. Uh, this is a nice paper published in AJKD. And they looked at uh, big trials. They looked at big studies. And they showed that people who had proteinuria reduction, albuminuria reduction, and, and studies where there was, there were interventions which uh, slowed down the GFR slope. They also had decrease in uh, end-stage renal disease and the doubling of creatinine. So they said, they said, this is so tightly correlated that we will accept it as a surrogate outcome for accelerated approval. And that's how, you know, Filsparri has been approved and it's, that's how they can nag Nayan and others uh, because it's, it's accepted as a surrogate outcome. It makes sense, right? We can't wait. Uh, and the trial that Sophie's talking about, they did report the 40% uh, drop in GFR, 55% drop in GFR which all went in favor of, of Sparsantan. At 40% uh, uh, reduction in GFR in Sparsantan versus Erbesartan. And it was less with Sparsantan compared to Erbesartan, but the 95% the confidence intervals cross one. But that's fine because, you know, these drugs are not powered, these, these trials are not powered for that outcome. You would have to wait another two years. And the point is that if you wait another two years or another four years or maybe five years, these patients are going to be denied this treatment, which we know is effective. The, the point estimate was like 0.55 or something, which is pretty impressive. So I, I, I'm, you know, despite being a nitpicking uh, person, I'm pretty happy with this. I think, I think this is a new era in treatment of IgA nephropathy. We've got butesonide, we've got steroids, and now we've got, we've got flozins, and now we've got uh, one more drug. Which is interesting because this wasn't done with the background of SGLT2 inhibitors. So it'll be interesting what happens in the future and how that changes the outcomes. So. Excellent. Pick one. Protect two trial. Yes. I'm Sophie blazing a new, a new pathway with a truly, truly good pick. So our newest filtrate, AC, bring it. All right. I'm going to bring it. I can't get the reputation as the new worst picker. Don't worry. I'll, I'll mess it up in the future. All right. Well, I'm glad to see that you guys put a readable title for the one that I am going to choose, which is Immune Tolerance in Living-Related HLA-Matched Kidney Transplant Recipients, which is a mouthful, but still better than MDR 101, something like that. So um, this study I thought was really interesting. So um, it's looking at inducing chimerism and tolerance in, like it says, Living-Related HLA-Matched Kidney Transplant Recipients. Um, it was a phase three RCT, if I remember correctly. Um, they had 20 patients in the intervention arm and 10 in the control arm. Um, and the goal was basically, if you can induce chimerism, can you wean off the immunosuppression uh, within the first year after transplant uh, and then keep them off for two years. AC, what's, what's chimerism? So... <laughs> Uh, if we're going to induce it, I just want to know what we're inducing. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure it out. Yeah. So, like, I know. I was re Oh, go ahead. Yeah, so Chimera is this, I think, uh, a, a mythical animal, which is like two animals uh, in one. It's like med peds. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you take two things that nobody thinks should go together, you mix them together, you make it work. Okay. And yeah, then, I'm you know, we try and convince people that it improves outcomes. So, <laughs> so, so, um, so, you know, what they're doing and, and we actually, it's, it's, it's different, but we do something similar actually, um, where I am for people that need bone marrow transplants to try and induce chimerism, but this is for people that don't necessarily need that. I'm trying to think of how to induce explain this without using tolerance. the word, yeah, induce immune tolerance, using the donor's immune system as well as the recipient's immune system. So kind of almost like mixing the two. 
I think that's really interesting. I think there were a couple patients that had relapse of their original disease and things like that, but it was a pretty significant amount, actually, that were able to stay off immunosuppression for the two years afterwards. These were patients very carefully selected. They were very carefully patients. selected patients. But these patients got off all immunosuppression drugs. They were on yeah. no calcineurin inhibitor, no prednisone, Correct. no MMF. Nothing. And I think there were uh, two or three patients that relapsed with IgA, too. Um, but overall, a lot of patients remained off of immunosuppression and a couple rejection episodes as well. Um, but I think this is really interesting because even if it works for a substantial number of even very select patients, especially for me as, like a, as a partly peds person, we have tons of teenagers who, if we can one day move this to pediatrics and they could come off immunosuppression, we know we have the highest rates of graft failure. We know they have trouble being compliant with their medications. They're going off their immunosuppression <laughs> anyways because they're teenagers, right? Well, not if I take care of them. <laughs> but yes, yes, we know they're going to do it. And so, you know, if we can potentially benefit kids in this way, you know, we've seen so many things fail to increase the, the you know, ability to transplant organs. If we can save the ones that we have, I think that's incredibly important. Would you say teenagers or that population is more likely to get a living donor kidney? I mean, because they are incredibly selected patients at this point. So that's a good population to select at this time in, as well. Yeah, I think a lot of kids, we really try and push for, for living donation. And I think this would be even more of a reason to push for it. Yes, my only quibble with that, uh, I mean, I have to nitpick, uh, right? Uh, so, that, that, yeah, there were two rejections, and there was one rejection in the control arm as well. So, actually, yeah. the proportion of rejections were similar. Is The reason you want to have, you know, this has been always been the holy grail. Yeah. Can you get people off uh, uh, the immunosuppression? Is that the reason you do that is because you want to see the, all the safety outcomes. Like, you want to have fewer adverse events. So, in, in uh, the expectation here is that... Uh, the, in, the, in the intervention arm, there will be fewer adverse events, and they couldn't show that. But again, you could argue that, you know, with 20 patients and 10 patients, it's hard to show that CMV is less or what have you. So I, I do uh, hope that they continue doing this trial and they can actually prove that. Uh, right. They, that they, it's had, one, safer. they had one patient with a BK infection, and I always know, well, we just lower the immunosuppression. What, what do you do if there are none, right? <laughs> <laughs> But they, I don't know what you they do were there. still on immunosuppression at that time because they're on yeah. immunosuppression for that entire year. Gotcha. So they were okay. still in that time frame. Yeah. But that's like, you know, it's, it's awesome to see. You know, there's been a lot of new things in transplant with the Xeno transplant, which I, you know, I think it's, it's a, you know, uh, it's, it's a little bit further away. Uh, I hope Goldfarb is not here from New York. Uh, but so it's <laughs> going to take a few more years for, uh, for Xeno transplant to take off. But something like this, which people have been talking about forever, yeah. to actually prove that it works in humans, it's, it was, it's fabulous. It was an impressive trial. So pick number two goes to the Chimeric Dragon. I'm giving it a name because it doesn't have a good one. Can we call me the Chimeric Dragon? You are now the Chimeric Dragon. Med <laughs> Pete's doctor that you are. That's, what, that's what your cartoon will be too. Okay, the pick number three goes to Josh. Josh. What do you got, Josh? To take a second, like, first of all, it's so awesome to have everyone here in one place while we're doing this. Uh, can we, like, shout out the audience and clap for yeah. them? Is that yeah, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Woo! Yeah, usually it's just the... Yeah, usually it's just the six of us sitting, you know, in a basement or some office. <laughs> Josh has this wonderful background, which tells uh, it's, everyone it's that a he's alive. It tells us the weather yeah, the and weather. the date. <laughs> We still clap for ourselves, but it just us. Yeah. <laughs> we do clap for ourselves. Yes. Um, so the, the whiteboard is actually my wife's whiteboard, and she's here attending her Jane. first kidney week. Hi, Jane. 
And my COI is that she got a new job three months ago for Otsuka, who makes Tolvatan and makes the drug for the trial I'm going to pick, which is not on the board. Wait, Josh, can I just interrupt? I just realized that this woman that you introduced to me was your wife. I thought she was just with Otsuka. <laughs> that explains a lot. <laughs> Josh is the only person no, who introduces his wife as a COI. So I, no, you're, you're fine. Told her what I so, yeah, so I... I'm sorry. <laughs> so I have no personal relationships... Sorry, I have no professional relationships with uh, pharma companies. But you do have a personal relationship. But I have a personal relationship with this employee of a pharma company. Um, that said, I'm actually going to pick a late-breaking oral trial on the poster session from Thursday... And going that, off the draft board. Off the draft board. This is like a Sophie-level move. And I'm not sure how many folks went to the poster session on Thursday. Can we get a round of applause oh, for Thursday? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Great. So that's more than I thought. Um, but this is the Sibiprenumab. I'm kind of pronouncing it wrong. Sibiprenumab is the name of the drug. And it is an anti-April antibody uh, trialed in a phase two trial uh, of IgA nephropathy. Um, and so for folks who didn't hear about this trial before, it's 160 patients randomized into four groups of about 40 each. There is a placebo group, a low dose, a medium dose, and a high dose of the drug. They dose them monthly with this IV anti-B cell agent. It's a B cells that make IgA specifically agent. And they show that after a year of treatment and a year of follow-up, the people on study drug have a essentially like minus one mil per minute GFR loss and like 50% uh, proteinuria reduction. And people on placebo had like a minus six mils per minute GFR loss and about half that amount of proteinuria reduction, if memory serves. About 10% reduction proteinuria. 10%. I got it wrong here at 12 months. Placebo had a 20% reduction in proteinuria, but 2 milligrams of sebeprinilumab had a 47% reduction, 4 milligrams had a 58.8% reduction, and 8 milligrams had a 62% reduction, so much more profound than I identified. Very significant proteinuria reduction, which was the primary outpoint, uh, outcome in this trial, but the exploratory uh, 40% EGFR loss, end-stage kidney disease, uh, kidney outcome that we all know and love, uh, was profoundly positive in this trial. And I think, I, I know the program committee has a really hard time picking eight abstracts for the oral session. Last year, we had the Stop ACE trial, which was a simultaneous New England Journal of Medicine and poster. And this year is kind of the stop ace of 2023, uh, is this Sibi trial, which had, again, a New England Journal of Medicine article, as high impact as it gets, and a poster in the back of a convention hall. <laughs> so it's, it's tough, right? And, and I think part of that is a success story. Part of that is how exciting it is to see new results in nephrology. And probably we, would, we deserve two late-breaking abstract sessions. I know AJ is used to this. I know AHA is used to this. I know the oncology people are used to this. Success is new for us. Um, but I think... <laughs> I think we might actually... This might be a trend. And I think it makes sense to think about adding a second late-breaking abstract oral session, not scheduling cool sessions against it, and really getting people to go and hear the cool new stuff that's happening. Can, I, can we piggyback on that? Like, what's the other trail that's April and... 
And there was another poster that's like, Stop it. You can just delete that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's too late. There's no way to delete that. <laughs> There's always a way to delete it. We'll take care of that in post. Everybody who didn't hear that, that's not in the podcast. <laughs> Yeah, but which, which is mostly what I do. <laughs> During the podcast, I'm like, okay, we'll edit that out. We'll edit that out. <laughs> but, but you're absolutely right. Like, uh, uh, there was uh, Bardak Salon. Does any one of you know Bardak Salon? I think there was a trial. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, you're getting ahead. So, anyway, I, I, so there was a trial 10 years ago showing that molecule sucks. But someone kept deciding to study that and there no, was a no, negative no, 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 trial, no, 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 which was there today. This is not my pick, but what we, I'm saying yeah. is... Shut up. Because uh, my pick. <laughs> what I'm saying is, that was an oral thing. And, and to, to Josh's point, you know, I think, I think the people who review... I hope none of the reviewers are here in the audience uh, who review these lead-breaking trials. They they're not good, they're not good at discriminating. Yes, if you are a reviewer, stand up, because we want to throw some <laughs> rotten fruit at you. We've but, got some bones so, to pick, okay? So I, I actually... And, and, and if they can't discriminate, like Josh said, we should just have two sessions. The American Heart Association has seven or sometimes nine sessions. What's wrong with having, you know, more sessions? Who cares? I agree with you. I, one thing I, I know that I didn't know before this year was that the committee picking asterisk has no idea what the results of these trials are. It's not just us who don't know. They don't know either. Yeah. So it's really hard to guess which ones are going to be highly impactful trials that are positive versus negative, and it's really important to show negative data. So I, I don't want to take those off the presentation docket. At the same time, uh, Bart is a, a tough child to love and put back on them. Yeah, a, a bunch of these things though, you know, like when drug companies have a result, they, for insider trading issues, they have to issue a press release. So the, the uh, Sparsantan results were out, the Bardoxalone results were out, uh, and people who, you know, should know, should know. Uh, so this, it's really, uh, they should do a better job. I think we need one session that only Swap chooses. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Although I'm surprised that you got by with saying there's a trend towards so, success here, and he did not get on you for that, because I think you got to prove that we're <laughs> successful. As it's a, a phase two trial. So <laughs> okay, we're going to move along. Nayan, what do you got? Okay, so I am picking the ENACT trial. This is the intervention to improve. Hey, guys, we, we already did the podcast Can on you that, wait Nayan? till I finish? <laughs> I can't believe that Amit's not here. <laughs> hey, you guys didn't invite me on that podcast. So. I think we invited, but you couldn't make it. <laughs> I didn't know this was a thing. It's really exciting. <laughs> I might have just missed the email. Can we now. let him pick, announce his pick before okay. we get all over him? Do you have anything else to say as well? <laughs> Go ahead. Plenty. The, 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 yeah. <clears throat> this is the intervention to improve patient access to kidney transplant and living donation. If you weren't there because you were at the um, MMA fight or the uh, hyponatremia, <laughs> this is a <laughs> pragmatic cluster randomized trial. Over 20,000 patients, 26 centers, uh, which I think is all the centers in Canada. It was a Canadian study, and it was a intervention where they used this multi-pronged approach. It was four components to try to improve access to transplant by getting patients with advanced AKD eligible versus standard of care. It was a negative trial. So why am I picking it? I have a few reasons. So one is I'm, what, the fourth pick in this draft? So I'm mostly picking Amit Garg. And, and with the fourth pick, this is the highest a Canadian has ever been picked in a major <laughs> Except, except for the NHL. I said major draft. <laughs> also, I feel like 
I, I feel like um, you guys all know the, the Taylor Swift effect and the NA, NFL is experiencing the twi- I feel like we have the Amit Garg effect now in nephrology. He did my temp last year. How many has he done in the last 10 years? I think he's been on the podium like six times. Right. So, you know, you're, you're just picking talent at this portion of the uh, He's of also the very handsome. He is the most well-dressed human being I've ever seen. He a great jacket. Life. It was a great jacket. It was jacket. a bold move. Yeah. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah, it was a negative trial. So we had, you know, uh, and then... So we're down to his clothing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but this, the animated slide with the sound effect was fantastic. Can we, yeah. It was the best slide. Yeah, Michelle, where was so your long animated long. slides? Come on now. <laughs> Yeah, it was really well done. The, the presentation was really well done. And I think if you put this up to a, to a popular vote, anything that's going to increase access to transplants is going to win. And, you know, they really suffered from COVID. They had a lot of issues. But I think this is a good step forward. Uh, and something that we all need to be thinking about is how do we increase access to transplant. He made a, he, he made a really nice point, And he's actually written about this, about how this is going to impact uh, care moving forward in, in Canada. So that's my yeah, I mean, the, the one thing, and you should listen to the podcast. We have a, a patient ambassador. <laughs> we, we have a transplant ambassador who's a patient who's really awesome, uh, who was on the podcast. But the thing is, like, you know, uh, unlike the U.S., the Canadians do so well on transplant that it's hard to do better. Right? That's the reason the trial was negative, because we are so good. That's all bullshit. <laughs> That's not true at all. That was not why the trial failed. And I also want to say, like, the simultaneous publication and freely filtered podcast thing has got to become a trend. That was so cool. Uh, I literally, I didn't know that was happening, so I don't know how you kept that under wraps. You should read your DMs more. I should read my DMs more. We were uh, wondering. It was like, Josh seems clueless. What's going on with him? I thought it was an change. act. Is that really a change for me? I don't know, but uh, but no, it was exciting. Yeah, so th- that's an interesting story, quickly. Uh, okay. uh, like, so a, a month ago... It's so never quick. Just have another drink. <laughs> Uh, so Amit had done a podcast, My Temp, with us, uh, and he really probably enjoyed it. He probably got feedback that, you know, you were awesome, the podcast was good. So roughly a month ago, he sent me a message saying, hey, can, can we talk? And I said, hey, what is this? And he called me saying, hey, you know, this, this, I've got a late date breaking trial, and it's going to be published in JAMA Internal Medicine. And you remember, we did the podcast. Can we do another podcast? And I'm like, um, how can we do a podcast? And he's like, you know, we could do a simultaneous uh, release. We re- record the podcast before. So it actually came from the author approaching FJC. It wasn't us approaching them. It was them approaching us saying, hey, I want to have publicity for my trial. And I can get the publicity by getting uh, freely filtered. You know, so he was like, yeah, JAMA Internal Medicine is publishing. But I really want to make sure freely filtered is available. <laughs> So, I mean, you're, t- so you're saying we freely filtered them? We freely filtered the inactive This is podcast. yeah. So I, I heard this for the first time this this meeting was that when we do a trial, we freely filter it as like a verb to freely filter the MyTemp trial, or we freely filtered duplex or, or whatever. And so I think I'm, I'm going with that forward. I like that. I mean, to be fair, Amit will probably be back next year with a late break, and we might as well just book him now for. You know, <laughs> like, well, I'm, I'm expecting eight freely filtered episodes to drop simultaneously with all eight trials <laughs> next year. Or, or 16, really, when we have two Josh, shows. do you want to edit some podcasts? Uh, I'm a little busy. <laughs> the rest of us might roll over uh-huh. in our graves if we're doing that many. <laughs> so we're going to have to do Excellent. like five months Excellent in advance. Excellent pick. Enact a negative trial that made the, that made <laughs> the high, uh, high impact late-breaking trials. Swap. 
you get the next pick. Yeah, so, so one of the vexing issues, I'm a, I'm a dialyzer, I'm not a GN person. Uh, so one of the vexing issues is, you know, you have a patient with uh, atrial fibrillation on dialysis. What should you do? He's going off the board, guys. He's not, that's yeah, there, not on the nothing, board. Yeah, there's there's no here. AFib up there. Do you see oh. AFib there? No, you don't. Uh, that's because the ASN reviewer suck. Um, so, uh, <laughs> I did not say that. <laughs> so, so how many of you give Epixaban? I do. A lot of you. It's uh, a podcast, so I'm going to describe about half to a third of the population raise their hand. They give Epixaban for, a, we're talking about for AFib. How many of you give uh, warfarin for AFib in dialysis? Don't do yeah. it. Nobody raised their hand. Nobody no. admits to it, and I know you're I saw, all doing it. I saw it, one right? hand. The cheapo Canadians uh, still use warfarin. Right. Um, how many of you do no anticoagulation? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> A couple? No, about three, it, it doesn't three? count if it's Romania because they, they can't afford it. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> so there are about three people who pick no anticoagulation, and sometimes I do that too. So this is the same. Yeah. So that is the, the, the SAFE D trial, another Canadian trial, uh, uh, which was. Uh, uh, so there have been a couple of Wait trials. Wait a second. Are you picking a Canadian trial on purpose? Uh, <laughs> I think it's a really great trial, and it's got a few lessons. <laughs> no, I, absolutely no conflicts of interest. Uh, so I, uh, the, uh, Ottawa was a site. I'm from Ottawa. Ottawa was a site for the SAFE D trial, but I was not uh, the investigator. So uh, there have been a couple of trials. Uh, which were very strangely presented at AHA, but not at ASN a year ago, probably because they were pushed to posters, and AHA said, hey, come and do an oral. Anyway, we are speculating, but uh, there was the renal AF trial with about 150 patients, and Exadia with about 100 patients. The thing is, they, though both those trials wanted to enroll many hundreds of patients, and they failed to enroll many hundreds of patients. So they were negative because they were underpowered. So rather than do something like this, uh, you know, the smart Canadians who are doing this trial said, hey, let's do a feasibility trial. Let's see if it is possible to do a trial. So this is really a pilot feasibility trial. And it was positive because they succeeded. The outcome here is, can we enroll patients? Can we give them Epixaban? Will, if we give them warfarin, will they stay on the warfarin? Uh, and 83% of them stayed on the warfarin. Uh, so that was the... And the other 7% got calciphylaxis. It was brutal. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so a couple of people got calciphylaxis on warfarin, and one person on placebo got calciphylaxis, right? Uh, the, the interesting part, so, so we succeeded in enrolling 150 patients. 50 were on apixaban, uh, 5 milligram BID, 50 were on warfarin, and 50 were on no anticoagulation, which is the amazing part, right? The, the renal AF and Exadia had warfarin versus, placebo versus uh, a warfarin or a vitamin K antagonist versus Epixaban. This is warfarin versus Epixaban versus nothing. The interesting thing part was that uh, among the, uh, so the outcome was, you know, feasibility and it succeeded as feasibility. But among the adverse events, they reported strokes. Strokes are like very low, only one patient and two patients had strokes. So if you do a trial, uh, the lesson it here... Was only, it was only six months. It was only six months, but there were very few strokes. But the, but the lesson is, if you have 500 patients, you're still not going to have a lot of strokes. So your trial will fail because you have very few events. But there were a lot of bleeding events, and there were a lot of mortality. And the bleeding events were highest in the... In the warfarin group, exactly. So warfarin had more bleeding than apixaban. Warfarin had more bleeding than placebo. So uh, they haven't decided on what they are going to do, but I think it makes sense to do an apixaban versus placebo trial and not do an apixaban versus warfarin, which will be, you know, 
you know, Epixaban will win because Warfarin sucks. Uh, so I think this is the reason you do pilot trials, right? Because you work out what is your question, you work out what is the right outcome, you work out how you should be doing it. So I hope that there will be, uh, and these guys are uh, applying for funding, so eventually we'll have a thousand patient uh, trial from Canada, which will inform practice. It'll be a practice changing uh, trial in a few years. It won't be Amitkar. But That'll be, be a poster else. in the back of the <laughs> convention holiday. <ASM. laughs> Hopefully not. I, lo I look forward to freely filtering that one in the future. <laughs> Our home and native land. Ooh, you're pretty good. There's more words to that? <laughs> I a few more words to that. What's, to what Canadian song was that? With a lot of Canadian hockey players. <laughs> okay, last draft pick this year. I am going with the AYAM trial. So this is a Bardoxalone trial. This is a zombie drug. This drug will not die. Put it to bed, Joel. Wait, it is dead. Until today. It is finally dead. No, I, I bet that next year there will be another late-breaking and high-impact trial with Bardoxalone. And so to be clear, you're picking this and passing up two positive trials. I the aldosterone synthesis. Your big speech about positive trials. And Zenit. There's a lot of good stuff on the board. There's a lot of good stuff on the board. There's alchemist, which is... But I find it's... I look at what's left and I choose the funniest one. Okay? So... This all began with the BEAM trial, which showed that you could improve GFR and diabetic kidney disease with this drug, Bardoxalone. And I remember that was a late-breaking and high-impact clinical trial, and it was really exciting when it came out because we could now improve GFR. To ignore the fact that it also increased proteinuria. That's probably not important that it <laughs> doubled the proteinuria. No problem. This is good for diabetic kidney disease. And then we, at our site, we enrolled people for Beacon, and we enrolled all these people, and they got hypomagnesemia, and they got malnutrition, and they had cardiac disease, and it was a total disaster. Yeah, but their GFR was better. Their GFR, their GFR was, better. was better. It really, it really Briefly. is a remarkable Briefly. drug, right? Briefly. You got to be yeah, careful. More of them died. Yeah. yeah, they died with a better GFR. Oh, well, they had a better GFR. We, no, we call that we call that death with a functioning graft. That's a win. <laughs> Hey, if we can do it in transplant, we can do it in CKD, right? That should be good, right? So actually, in, in diabetic kidney disease, they stopped the, the uh, at that time. We thought no, they, but they the, stopped. They stopped the trial two weeks before ASN, but uh, Riata, who was the company that owned Bardoxalone back then, had already booked. They were the platinum sponsor for ASN, and they didn't even show up. So there's this big oh, no. gap in the floor space where Riata was supposed to be. It was rather embarrassing. It was, it was pretty funny. Um, so, but, but, but Bardoxalone, that wasn't the last time Bardoxalone. There was another trial a few years ago where they came back and they showed that the drug uh, really did improve GFR. And they had they, inulin they did clearance. Inulin clearance. They yeah, did the inulin clearance. Trial. Right, yeah. so because everybody said, oh, it must be tubular secretion or something. No, no, it really does improve GFR. It really is remarkable. And, and the fact that it improved GFR is so tantalizing. We saw they used it in Alports. It did not work there. They... Michelle, do you know anything about it that? It sort of worked. It did work. It did work in Alport. It, it, it reduces the surrogate outcomes. Uh, because the GFR goes up, the GFR slope looks better, right? The thing is that, the, do you trust that result? That's the whole question. Uh, so the GFR slope improved, but when it went to FDA, the FDA adcom were wiser, and they said, hey, you know, this is not like the RAS inhibition GFR slope. Your drug has a different mechanism, and, and I think the company was very unprepared, uh, and FDA gave it a thumbs down for Alport.
So they were doing some studies there. They, they were doing a study in PKD also, but uh, I'll let you finish. But now we have diabetic kidney disease again, and they screened these patients so they had less cardiovascular risk. And in fact, they crossed the finish line without excess cardiovascular risk, but no benefit in GFR. They did a 16-week washout to make sure that they didn't have any hemodynamic effects from this drug and no, no advantageous. So, but the molecule lives on. It fights on. Bardoxolone will not die. I'm looking forward to future late-breaking and high-impact trials with more Bardoxolone. Again, when you pick at the end of the draft, you just go with what's funniest. So I think, I, I, I'm not sure it, it will go on. It was very, it was very strange. We have an ADPKD trial that's coming. So that's no, no, be no, no, they stopped it. Oh, they, they they, so Riata have, uh, once this result came out, Riata decided to stop the PKD program. They decided to give up finally, rather than argue with, uh, with FDA on the airport, they said, hey, okay, this is enough. We are going to walk away. At least that's what they say now. I think they had said something. Similar post beacon, but I think this is it. I hope this Michelle, is Michelle, do you have your patients still asking for Bardoxalone by name? Nobody's asking for that drug. Yeah, I mean, it's, it was very interesting, right? It would, it would upturn the, the dogma that we have, you know, about hyperfiltration uh, and about this increase in GFR. GFR never increases, right? That's what we tell patients, uh, unless it's AKI, but otherwise in CKD, GFR doesn't go up. This drug actually did improve GFR. It was a very strange thing, but it actually caused proteinuria, and I'm sure that cannot be good, right? It, it would be bad for the surrogate outcomes, because we like to reduce proteinuria. We still have a few more minutes, right? Yeah, we've got about 10 more minutes. Michelle, do you want to come up and talk about your favorite study? Yeah. Because what you really need is more podium time today. No pressure. This is like a lot less pressure. Than a lot of people in here, probably today. as many that were, as were in the... These are your colleagues. Don't kick over Josh's drink glass. <laughs> Sorry, I kicked over Josh's drink. It's an open bar. It's okay. The listeners in the podcast who uh, don't see what's going on, Michelle Rowe has come on the stage. Do you want to introduce yourself, Michelle? Sure. I'm Michelle Rowe. I'm a pediatric nephrologist, so I'm very happy that I'm no longer sitting at the kids' table <laughs> to like, sit, sit up here with everybody else, so that's great. Um, I'm at the University of Minnesota, so I'm a Midwesterner. Um, exactly. <laughs> And um, I presented the duplex study today, which was sparsentin in FSGS. And we showed that it, it basically reduces proteinuria a lot in patients with a FSGS, um, about 50%. Um, but the slope GFR uh, was not statistically significant when we looked at that. And I think the challenge in FSGS is, is slope GFR the right endpoint? So slope GFR is a surrogate endpoint, just like everything else. So we want it to be able to predict um, hard outcomes like end-stage kidney disease or doubling of serum creatinine. And it may be that in FSGS, that's not the right endpoint. Maybe we should be looking at partial remission or maybe we should be yeah, looking but you at had, complete you had remission. Bigger increases in complete remission also, Correct. right? Yeah, that, that was, was significant. Pretty solid complete remission. Um, and that's, bo- that's good for patients, right? We should be very going for complete yes, remission. Very good for patients. I mean, it sounds good, complete right? Remission. That's correct. Patients like that when they're like, you say the words complete <laughs> remission, they're like, that sounds good. Yeah. I want that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and though the uh, GFR slope was not significant, you know, there was the point estimate was favorable. There was like a one millimeter, one ml per minute 
minute Correct. difference or something yep. like that. And when you look at the, the IGA study and the FSGS study, the numbers were almost exactly the same for GFR slope, but the confidence intervals were almost twice as wide for FSGS. And we, there's a lot of reasons for that. It's just a messy number in FSGS. It's relapsing, it's remitting. Um, the GFRs are kind of up and down. When immunosuppression gets started, it, things go up and down. So it's, it's, it's not as tight of a slope as it is with CKD in general. Did you have patients, were you a PI also? Did you enroll patients? I was a PI also, and I have a patient in the Duet study um, who enrolled in 2014. That's the phase two companion for duplex. He entered a complete remission like in 2014, and he's been in, in the open label extension ever since then. So like 10 years later, he's still in complete remission. And, and what, what kind of adverse events are you seeing with his parsentin? Um, you know, we haven't seen very much hyperkalemia. That's kind of what we've seen in, in practice. No, no in fluid the patients. overload, no heart no, failure. No, haven't seen any fluid you, overload. You pretty young patients? Yeah, in general, I do adult. I do enroll adult patients in my clinical trials as well. So have have it's had just like some forty something, right? Yeah. This yeah, is the a dumb question. But why are we not seeing fluid overload and sparsentin, whereas like atrocentin and then our other one or zebotentin? That's like not a dumb big question. Concern. Good question. Good question. It's a really good yeah, question. good question. <laughs> why? Yeah, yeah, Michelle. What about that? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, it's a magic drug. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, no, I, I think it's because the the clinical trials are really screened well. Um, so you have to you ha are evaluated ahead of time. Make sure that you don't have any pre-existing heart disease. So I think what that's one of the challenges of moving a drug from clinical trials to clinical practice, because in the trials you're really screening out anybody who's going to be at high risk for for those side effects. But in clinical practice. Maybe not so much. So um, that's where some of these REMs come in, where you have to really watch the patients that you're giving these drugs to. You had some you had pediatric patients in that trial too, right? Which yeah, I really we had, that's we had we never 30, see. Yeah. 35 cool. kids in the trial, which is great. I think all of these um, yeah, that's all right. of these studies Woo! need to include children um, because they have the disease too, and we can't just sit back and wait. 10 years until the pediatric plan gets finally finished so that we, you know, we know if these drugs are safe for our patients. And I really appreciated the point you made in the, in the closing of your talk when you kind of said, yeah, this didn't reach statistical significance, but that, that slow in the rate of decline, if it's real, is really, really clinically significant, especially for patients that are that young. And that's one of the real difficulties that, that exist in pediatric trials, especially, or trials where you're including pediatric patients, is they're so there's so fewer patients that reach those hard endpoints of like, you know, end stage kidney disease and things like that, that, that chronic slope really matters. And, you know, how do you power a trial to kind of reach that statistical significance? But I, I appreciated that point that you yeah, made. Yeah, absolutely. And if you can delay end stage kidney disease from age, let's say 17 to age 25, you know, it's not that big of a difference, but you can get kids through college, through Eight their, years is you huge know, anything, is, especially is those huge. years. Yeah. 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 Can we agree how naughty of a disease FSGS is, though? <laughs> it's terrible. Yes. Yeah. It's on my list of things not to I mean, get. That, I mean, even when you have, you know, what looks like a trend in benefit, it's really, as you said, you're going 18 to 25. It doesn't feel that good. It's still fantastic because we don't, we haven't had that benefit in the past, or like previously, but this still doesn't feel good. We've yeah, got it's, a long it's way inc to incremental go. benefit. Remind me, was this all comers FSGS, or did you elucidate? So this was uh, primary FSGS, whatever that means. 
and genetic FSGS <laughs> was the all, guys. Was also Whatever that included. Means. <laughs> um, so it did include genetic FSGS. So we had about nine to 10% with uh, podocyte proteins, about seven to 8% had type four collagen variants. Um, so a little but bit of genetic. But this is not, a, it, it's not like a uh, immunological effect, right? So right. spirocentine should yep. work, whatever would be the etiology right. of it. So it's like I an think inhibition. Even, even secondary FSGS, we probably should have included because it probably would have worked for that too. Yeah. So, uh, Philspari is approved for IgA nephropathy, so well, they can what, harass what, Nyan. What? We're not using any Spirocentan is Thank approved, you. so the Philspari wraps can harass Nyan. Uh, but has it been approved for uh, FSGS? It has not been approved for FSGS. Okay, do you know? And I do not, I am not aware of what of when they are going progress. to the Because FDA it's kind of that. a mixed Is there going right? to be a continuation study, or are those patients off drug now? Uh, no, there's an open-label extension study that's ongoing. What happened to the placebo group? Do they all get put on drug? Or? They all get put on drug, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's one of the yeah. challenges of an open label yeah. extension. You lose, uh. you lose that comparator group. What does it cost this drug? Mm. All the money in the world. <laughs> yes. all, all of the drugs are all the money. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, but that's the downside, right? I mean, we can't, uh, uh, I'm Canadian, so I, I quibble about cost wait, a lot. Wait, At wait, the same time. Are you Canadian? <laughs> I am now. <laughs> so uh, uh, the uh, we, we have been complaining about you know pharma doesn't do trials now but now they are doing trials so I think it's legitimate that they should profit from these trials because if they don't profit they are not going to do trials and one of the reasons these trials are happening is that you know that I talked about the GFR slope being accepted as a surrogate outcome proteinuria being accepted as a surrogate outcome so industry said hey this is worthwhile for us we can get approval, we can make some profit, so we'll do trials. Until now, otherwise it was in a barren wasteland, right? Like a negative trial after negative trial. Now at least they are doing the trials because they can make some profit. Yeah, I, I know it, they make too much money. But still, I think this is, it, it's, it's a positive development. You can't have one without the other. Okay, so we need to wrap this up. We're gonna do tubular secretions real quick. Michelle, hand that back over to Josh. I'm going to start with tubular secretions. And so for tubular secretions, we're going to switch it up and we're going to do what session do you need to go to tomorrow? And so tomorrow, there is an electrolyte question section. The person running it is Melanie Honig, and she's been bragging all week. All week, she's been saying that uh, Roger Rodby has the greatest electrolyte case she has ever seen. Okay. Meanwhile, so Roger Rodby is like frantically working on his slides right now, Roger's freaking making out. making up That's shit <laughs> as we speak. That's right. <laughs> so I would, I would recommend the electrolyte question section tomorrow uh, with Melanie Honig as the uh, person. Who else when is ready? When is that? Tomorrow. Yeah, You've that's got, a, that's you got, a 24 hour period. Yeah, that's right. You can figure it out. You got the, you got the app. Yeah, so can I go next? Because yeah, yeah, I yeah. want to pick something because you guys, before you guys pick it. Well so there, there's, a, there's a session uh, at, at of course, of course. I'm looking at the app. Sorry. Uh, I, I had a schedule. So, so just to answer the when you would find this, it's Joel's two to four ballroom B nephrology quiz and questionnaire. What time? Ballroom B, two o'clock. Two right. o'clock at ballroom B. That be there or somewhere else. <laughs> so at 4.30 in the evening, there's a session called Liquid Gold. Urinary God sediment microscopy. Current <laughs> utility of an old find tool. A new session. <laughs> So that is in room 204, and we have one of the faculty here. Uh, Florian is there. Swiss Nephro Florian is here. So 
So it's, it's, the, it's the triumvirate on, on uh, left Twitter who tweet all these wonderful pictures. Uh, JC Velez, Florian Bruckheimer and Jay Selzer will be doing this on Liquid Gold. The Piss Profits. Yeah, the Piss Profits will be doing this. This is going to be an awesome session. It's in room 204 at... Okay, who else I, is ready? I, ca I can go before Sophie picks her uh, drug-sponsored lunch session. <laughs> swap picked my session. So just going through the list here, I'm going to go to Onco-Nephrology, Primer for the Nephrologist. 10.30 to 12.30, room 201. Uh, mostly because I only do uh, our cardio-renal service and I know nothing about Onco-Nephrology. So Excellent. I'll be there. Excellent. Got something, Sophie? Can I select the other podcast that's happening in this building at this very moment? Please do. Oh Tell us more about please. that. Tell us more about oh, that yeah. podcast. Remind Sophia. me what it's called again. Nope. You got to know. It's called Cocktails. It's not spelled the way you would spell it. Cocktails. <laughs> no, it I'm is going spelled there after the way this. Spelled, isn't it? That Did literally this? is oh, happening no. in a yep. different room. No. No. No, it's, it's what you probably originally <laughs> thought. <laughs> We probably have some nephrologists that went astray and they're the, now there and wondering what they're doing. The weirdest feel, feel, freely filtered ever. <laughs> it's about dialyzing chickens. Yeah. As, as, one would expect. as one would expect. We, we don't know that chickens aren't involved in this story, but I, that would be pretty weird. Okay. <laughs> uh, wait, okay. So I, I can't think of anything because... Um, you guys took my ideas. AC, what do you got? So that's why I have to go to cocktails. Uh, so somehow, even though I think I'm the youngest person on this stage, I'm the only person caught without my phone. So, <laughs> so while you all were frantically pulling up the yeah, schedule yeah, 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 for yeah, yeah. tomorrow, okay. I, have to, I have to make a decision tonight. I, have to, I don't okay, know. Okay, Josh, what do you got? So I'm going to pick Melanie's session, too, as my first pick. Because oh, I think it's that? really going to be yeah, great. Yeah, go no, ahead. that's fine. Sure, whatever. Um, no rules. I... I do you think if I had to pick a second, the controversies in CKD honoring Jerry, uh, Jerry Yee session looks really great? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I did not have a. It's pretty safe to go to Melanie's suggestion pretty much any time. Yeah. I, I didn't have the pleasure of meeting Dr. Yee. I, I don't know if, if anyone on this stage has and wants to, to speak to his impact. Yeah. And, and so like Jerry, Jerry Yee was the chief of nephrology at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. And it was a legend. He was the editor of um, KSAP for many years and was a, a huge member of the nephrology education community, a incredibly intelligent guy, a huge brain, never forgot a name, never, never forgot a face, knew everything about baseball, uh, and, um, and uh, he left us too soon. Real, real disappointment. Really sorry. And so... And so I think this is the first time that session is happening because he passed away in the past year, I think. And the, 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 uh, the sessions, so there, it's in case you like blood sport from hyponatremia today, um, there are three debates that are going to happen, one on HIF PHIs, uh, one on age-adapted cutoffs for CKD that's probably like those 85-year-olds should not come to my clinic, yet pro or con, and then uh, albumin versus protein, which one should you measure in the urine? So those seem reasonably interesting. When is the session? It's at 10.30 in room 204. Nan can make that one. Uh, yes, I will be awake by then, yeah. <laughs> I know it's hard. Hey guys, hey, thanks for coming. This has been a lot of fun. We'll cue the music. Don't close your browser. <laughs> <laughs>